So we're going to start out with what I think really uh, an overriding theme in the, in the book of Joel is, is repentance, okay? There are two calls to repentance in Joel, and the first one is in chapter 1. Now, if you remember last week, chapter 1 deals primarily with a description of the devastation wrought by locusts and drought. And we kind of talked a, bit, a little bit about locusts and what they can do and, and uh, how devastating they were and how the land was just decimated. And uh, the livestock had nothing, uh, the, the, the wild animals of the, of the wilderness had nothing uh, because everything had been either eaten by the locusts or destroyed by the drought. And so, uh, but in chapter 1, uh, in verses 13 through 14, uh, there's a call to repentance. And so we're going to read that again. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Okay, so there's this call to repentance, and there are some specific things that they are told to do. Okay, uh, what are they, what's the first thing that you see that they're supposed to do? There's some specific instructions given to the way they're supposed to carry out this repentance. Huh? Sackcloth, that's right. The priests are supposed to put sackcloth on, okay? And it said they're supposed to spend the night in sackcloth. Okay, what else? What's, what's something else they've got to do? They've got to fast. They're going to have a fast, okay? They're not going to eat, okay? Which probably shouldn't have been too hard for them, uh, considering the fact that probably all they had to eat was locusts. But uh, anyway, they're supposed to have a fast, okay? And then uh, what's another thing they're supposed to do? Huh? Lament, that's right. They're supposed to lament and mourn, okay? So there's supposed to be uh, an attitude of sorrow, okay? What else? Wail, okay? Call a solemn assembly. Do you know what a solemn assembly is? Huh? Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, it's mentioned a number of times in the, in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, particularly in uh, uh, conjunction with the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was like on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would call a solemn assembly. And uh, we had, several years ago, when I was at Ridgecrest, we had a series by Henry Blackaby, and he had a thing about having a solemn assembly. And we went through a solemn assembly, and what we did was we we came in, and nobody said a word, okay? But we sat there, and we, we contemplated our sins, okay? We were supposed to try to think of as many sins that we had in our life as we could, okay? And then we were supposed to confess those sins to God. And uh, the idea of the solemn assembly being, you know, it is a solemn occasion. When, when you sit there and you contemplate your sinfulness, uh, uh, that's solemn, okay, before God. And uh, 
because a flippant attitude towards sin is what gets people in the shape that these people were in here to start with, okay? They had a flippant attitude towards sin. They didn't recognize it in their lives. Okay, so they're, they call a solemn assembly. And then what else do you see there? Is everybody supposed to just do this in their own house? How are they supposed to do it? They're supposed to, everybody, it says, gather all the inhabitants of the land and come to the house of the Lord and cry out to the Lord. Okay, so this was a congregational thing, okay? This was not where everybody was just supposed to kind of, you know, go to their bedroom and get down on their, get down on their knees by their bed and, and, and repent. Okay, this was a thing where the nation was supposed to come together. The inhabitants of the land were supposed to come together at the temple. And they were supposed to confess and they were supposed to call out to God. Okay, so there's some specific things here. Now, we're going to look at the second call to repentance. Okay, and that's over in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And this call follows Joel's proclamation of the imminent or near day of the Lord, which is a day of terrible judgment. And he says, blow the trumpet. You know, that's how he starts out in verse, uh, chapter 2, blow the trumpet. Okay, and then we read this last week, this description of the day of the Lord, and it's kind of a poetic uh, use of terminology and and, and and ideas from the locust invasion, but it's applied to an army that it says this army is like no other army that's ever been before or, or ever will be again, okay? And this army's going to invade. And so, uh, and then God was going to do, you know, great and mighty wonders, columns of fire, the sun was going to be darkened, the moon was going to turn to blood. Uh, and so, uh, there was a description of this day of the Lord and how terrible it was. And, uh, uh, in verse 11, uh, the last thing it says is, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Okay. Now, following that description of the day of the Lord, okay, this, this judgment that's coming, okay, because Joel has said, Okay, you guys have, have seen the, the locusts, okay, you're, you're experiencing that now. You're experiencing that devastation and that drought, okay. But the day, this, this day of the Lord is going to be far, far worse. It's going to be terrible. And, uh, and so he, he gives this description of, of what's going to happen. And now comes the second call to repentance. And that starts in verse 12. And it says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a, a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the, and the altar, let the priests and the, minister, the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make, make not your heritage your approach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Okay, so there's a second call to repentance. Okay, what are some similarities between the first call to repentance and this one? 
What are some of the same things, that the common occurrences, the common themes? Call a solemn assembly, okay. What else? Fasting. Gathering people. And this time he, he even goes into detail about who's supposed to be included. Even nursing infants, even brides and bridegrooms who were supposed to be exempt from any kind of public service basically for a year after they got married. Okay? Uh, nobody's exempt from this. Okay? This, this is supposed to involve everybody. Okay? And, and the weeping in the morning. Okay? And so in verse 12, this is a, to me, this is a very touching thing. Okay? God has just, through the prophet, you know, described this horrible judgment that is, is coming. And yet he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. So God is saying, you know, <laughs> I really don't want to do this. You know, return to me, okay? Uh, and this is just a, a picture of, of God's mercy, okay? Uh, in Romans 2.4, Paul says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Okay? Uh, God withholds judgment or holds it back because he's merciful. Okay? And his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So we will have time to, to come to grips and recognize our sin and turn from it. And so, this is. Uh, there's other places found in the, in the scriptures that are uh, that are uh, similar to this one. And when it talks about God, it says, "Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love." That's uh, one place that, that you can find that is in Psalm 103. Okay, Psalm 103, 8. Uh, so it talks about the Lord being compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Another place is in Exodus 34, 6. This is where Moses wanted to see God's glory. Okay? We've been through that. Uh, we can turn back there again. This is familiar to most of you, I think. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So, God, even though he's a God of judgment... He's also a God of mercy. That is why last week when we were talking about, you know, I mentioned the, the series by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. And in that, he, he asked the question, why does God, it's not a question of why God allows natural disasters and things like that to happen occasionally, you know, that kill lots of people and bring lots of misery. The question is, why doesn't he do it every day? And the, the answer to that question is because he's merciful. He's a merciful God. And otherwise he would do it every day until there wasn't anybody left. Uh, 
So, this call to repentance, very similar to the call that we saw in the, in the first chapter, except it's more detailed. There's more detail about exactly how things are to be done. And, and I do want to say something here. Uh, you know, I think after we've gone through all the stuff we've gone through in Exodus about the, temp, the tabernacle and everything, that we know God does care about form. Okay? Uh, God cared about the form of this repentance, but more than just the form, He cared about what? The heart, okay? He cared about their hearts. That's what God is really concerned about is the heart. He is concerned about the outward expression, okay? Uh, he's concerned about the way we worship. We can't just have free-for-all worship. We can't just come in here and everybody just do their own thing and do what they want to or decide that they don't want to come in here, that they want to go out and worship on the, the 18th green, you know, or something like that. That's not, you know, God is not, He hasn't given us that latitude. God has, has told us that there's things we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to neglect the assembling of ourselves together, so we're supposed to come together to worship, okay? We're supposed to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other, okay? We're supposed to have preaching of the Word. Uh, we're supposed to uh, observe the Lord's Supper. We're supposed to baptize people. They, these are things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to come together to pray. And so there's, there's things, you know, we're supposed to practice church discipline. There's all kinds of things specified in the New Testament about how the church is supposed to act, how the church is supposed to, to do things, okay? And uh, so we can't just have free-for-all. We can't just, everybody decide they're going to do their own thing. That's exactly what happened to, to Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They decided they were going to do their own thing. They decided they were going to offer strange fire. It was their own idea. They, they offered their own idea to God. And uh, so that tells me we need to be careful about any kind of a movement or any kind of a, of a philosophy coming out of any kind of new thinking, supposedly new thinking in the church about well, we don't, you know, we don't need all that old stuff anymore. You know, we, we can do new things, you know. Yeah, Chuck? I think one of the things you were talking about, the aspect of the Psalm Assembly, they come say it's a congregational thing, but I think a key point there is he told them to gather the elders to him, so it wasn't just all the people individually going towards the Lord, it's going as a people towards the Lord, and the Lord has a hierarchy of how he dealt with his people. Mm -hmm. Specifically told them to get the elders, and it's not just the, this is during the time of the prophet, when Joel's the prophet, and God speaks to us, but he has that leadership over the assembly as right. well, but he yeah. plans on the people to submit to his sovereignty truth. Mm -hmm. That's right. Good observation. Excellent observation. But there's a, there's a hierarchy there. Okay. Uh, some, some key scriptures we can think of. Uh, about God's concern for the heart. Uh, Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And here's one that, you know, kind of speaks to the 
the outward expression. Deuteronomy 10:16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and no longer be stubborn. Okay? You know, the, the Israelites, you know, the, the sign of uh, circumcision was given to uh, Abraham. That was the covenant sign, okay? And uh, so it, it became a big deal with, of course, the Israelites because it was supposed to be a big deal, but it became the deal, okay? In fact, it's, it was a big deal in the New Testament, you know, with Paul, you know, constantly having to fight against the Judaizers, who were insisting that if you were going to be a Christian and you were a Gentile, you needed to be circumcised, you know. And so, uh, uh, God says to his own people here, his chosen people, he says, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and quit being stubborn, okay. So, he's concerned about the heart. Okay. Then he says, here's what you're supposed to say. And he gives pretty specific instructions about what they're supposed to say when they, when they go to God. They're supposed to say, spare your people, O Lord, and make, your herit- and make not your heritage your reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And uh, this is a, there are several places in the Psalms where you can find a similar statement. You know, David saying, God, what, you know, uh, why should the nations say this about you? Why should the people say, where is their God? You know, uh, you know, come to our rescue. You know, don't let us be a reproach. It needs to be, you know, you need to, to uh, protect your name by protecting your heritage. We're your heritage, you know. And uh, Moses also prayed this. You know, we just got through a couple of weeks ago going through the chapter on the golden calf. And after that incident, God told Moses, I'm just going to destroy them all, you know. And Moses interceded for uh, Israel on behalf, on their behalf, and he said, "Lord, you know, you brought this. Pe- or you want the nations to say you brought this people out of the desert just to kill them?" You know, he he he, uh, he put before God his own promise that he'd made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. So then it goes immediately into the restoration. Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And then he goes on, and I will no, no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will, will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you heart, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the abundant rain, and the early and latter rains as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. 
And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the, the male and female servants in those, last, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. <clears throat> and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those, those whom the Lord calls. Okay, so this is the restoration, and it has both a kind of a present or imminent near-term uh, application, and it also has a future application, okay? When God says he becomes generous, je jealous for the land, and you can read through there how everything was restored, the, the crops were restored, the, the fruit trees uh, bore their fruit again, the rains were restored, the early and the latter rains, which was the fall and the spring rains. Uh, God healed the land. Okay, does this bring any verse to mind that we are familiar with? Hmm? Anybody got a verse? It is Second Chronicles 7. Uh, yeah, Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. Uh, we can turn there real quick. Uh, take a look at that. We're going we're gonna to add 13 on there in front because it kind of adds a bit of an explanation. <clears throat> Second Chronicles 7, 13 says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will he hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Okay, so Joel chapter 2, uh, second part, uh, beginning where it says God became jealous for his people. That's a, that's a direct uh, fulfillment of the prophecy of that scripture that was given in Second Chronicles, okay? And, you know, that should give us hope, okay? Not that we can make that same application, for example, to the United States of America, but we can make it to the church, okay? We can make it to ourselves because, you know, we go to sleep too, you know? And uh, God calls us to repentance as well. And he can restore, we can, we can get our lives in a pretty big mess, okay, by, by straying and uh, forgetting him. Uh, it's not, you know, uh, this brings to mind Isaiah 58, which we had spent some time in. And I think we can go there. I think we're going to have time to go there because I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the last two things. Uh, the strange thing about Isaiah 58, uh, if y'all remember, 
think Scott spent quite a, time, quite a bit of time in it, is it describes a people that are pretty, I mean, these people are sincere. These people actually enjoy hearing the word of the Lord. These people enjoy doing the things uh, that God has commanded in terms of the, you know, the, the feasts and the fasting and, and, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, it says, cry aloud. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it just says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression in the house of Jacob for their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with, with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Okay, so on the one hand, they, they were somewhat fervent. But on the other hand, they were totally, you know, it only went as far as the act itself. And after that, they were different. You know, come together for worship, you know, pray publicly, uh, you know, give a testimony, whatever. Uh, sit here and write, take notes on everything that Ben or Scott or Brad says, you know. Talk about afterwards, you know, with people as you're going out. Man, boy, that was what a, really a convicting sermon, man. I, I really affected me. But then when you go out the out of the parking lot and hit the road Monday morning, it's like it never happened, you know. And we live in the world, and we let the world dictate what we do. And uh, you know, so I think there's an application there. That's that's what. That, that can, that's something that we can get out of Joel, okay, is that uh, Satan is a master deceiver, and he can, he can deceive us into thinking that maybe our love for church and the things of church and the form and the, the things that we do when we come together and we can sing songs that make us feel good, give us emotional, you know, we get all teary-eyed and emotional when we sing certain songs, but the, the, the heart is not attuned truly to the living God. Okay? So, just some things to think about. The near term, <clears throat> uh, the locusts are removed. I think, uh, you know, there's some interpreters who think uh, when he says he's going to remove the northerner in verse 20 uh, he's talking about a, a real army because uh, some people think that this was maybe the Assyrian army or something but there's no real reference to any particular nation here uh, other, other interpreters, other scholars think that he's talking about the locusts okay? he's driven the locusts out and he's basically driven into the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea okay? and, uh, and they wash up on the shore and, you know, 50 billion locusts washing up on the shore dead can really stink, you know. Uh, and uh, some people remember the cricket invasion we had a few years ago here in Greenville. 
and they got into all the buildings, the banks, you know, the, the department stores and everything, and they died in there, and man, the smell was just unbelievable, and it lasted for months. You know, you could go into this thing, you know, three months later, and you could still smell these dead crickets. Even though they'd cleaned them out, they'd tried to, you know, fumigate the places and everything, but the smell was there. And so, uh, he's, he's driven out the locusts, they're not there anymore, and he's, he's restored the land, okay? But then there's a future aspect to this restoration. Uh, in verses 28 through 32, it's the same scripture that Peter quoted in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, where it says that God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, okay? And what happened at Pentecost and after, okay? Who was the primary audience at Pentecost, you remember? When Peter gave his speech, who was he talking to primarily? He's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to Jews. Now they were from different countries. They were from different areas. They weren't all from Palestine, okay? But they were all Jews, pretty much, okay? They'd come to observe the Passover and so forth, and uh, and then the Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And uh, but what happened after? Pentecost, okay? The, the Gentiles heard the gospel. You know, Peter started out by taking the gospel to Cornelius, and after that, Paul went as a missionary to the Gentiles. And uh, God poured his spirit on the Gentiles. So here we have it. It says that uh, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, okay? And then he even goes so far as to say it's going to be even to the, the male and female servants, okay? I'm going to go down to that low because typically if you look at the Old Testament, when God would send his spirit upon somebody, it was usually in a, for a specific purpose, a specific person. Uh, the spirit was sent to that person like David, for example. So the spirit came upon David, uh, Moses, okay? But the rank and file Israelites, the Holy Spirit didn't come upon them in that same way, okay? So there were certain people that were singled out, it seems like in the Old Testament, that the spirit fell on, okay? But God says in this latter day, I'm going to pour my spirit out on all flesh. Now, does he mean everybody when he says all flesh? Uh, no. He means all different kinds of people, okay? He's not talking about animals here, obviously. He's talking about people, okay, when he says all flesh. But he's talking about all different kinds of people, okay? And we've heard that talk talked about before, you know, where scriptures such as the one that says God is, is not willing for any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance, okay? Uh, all people uh, are all kinds of people to come to repentance. He wants people from every nation, okay, to come to repentance. And uh, so that's a way to look at that. When he talks about all flesh, all people, uh, uh, it's not a necessarily a universal all, in, meaning every single individual on the face of the earth. Okay, and your young men will see dream will dream dreams. Your old men will have visions and whatever. And and so this is going to be a future thing that's going to happen. And we saw it being fulfilled at Pentecost and afterwards. And it is still being fulfilled in our day. Okay? God is still pouring out His Spirit on people who come to, come to Him in faith through Christ. 
Okay? So, this is a future renewal. Now, it hasn't been totally fulfilled yet because it's going to precede the great and awesome day of the Lord and there's going to be great signs and wonders, okay? And the kinds of signs and wonders that we see here didn't necessarily accompany Pentecost or shortly thereafter, okay? So this is something that is going to take place before the final judgment of the nations, which is next, okay? Retribution, the third R. Uh, oh, and, and there is something else I wanted to say about this. Uh, you know, when Israel repented and God restored the land, okay, his primary motivation for that, I don't believe, was, oh, you were good little boys and girls, I'm going to reward you. Okay? Because if you go to, if you go to Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, verses 22 through 30, 32, that's a good place. You might want to write that down and go read it. Okay? Because it's a parallel, it's a very much of a parallel passage to this one in terms of God pouring out his spirit. Okay? But what he says is, it's not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm going to do this, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. Okay? So when God blesses his people after they have sinned and then repented, he's doing it. Yes, because he loves them and because he has pity on them, but he's doing it for the sake of his holy name. Okay? He's doing it to show the nations that he is God. And so that's a good one to go read in Ezekiel. Uh, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty powerful passage. Yeah. 36, 22 through 32. Okay, and then the retribution is in chapter 3. And uh, we don't really have time. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. But what I'm going to tell you is I'm going to kind of say, you know, read through it. But you see that uh, it says that in the days when he restores the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, he's going to gather the nations together for judgment. And he says he's going to gather them together in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, some people believe that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley, which actually goes down from Jerusalem towards the Dead Sea. But others believe that the name Valley of Jehoshaphat is symbolic because Jehoshaphat means Jeho or the Lord judges. And so they think that this is, we're just saying this is a valley of judgment. And so they equate that to the Valley uh, of uh, Israel, uh, Plain of Israel, or the Valley of Armageddon that's referred to in, in uh, Revelation. So, uh, and, you know, that, there's a, that would make sense. Uh, but he's going to gather the nations together, and he's going to do it because of the things that they have done to his people, okay? Uh, and he goes into some detail there. That you've sold them into slavery, you know, uh, human trafficking type of thing. Uh, you've divided up the land. You've stolen, you've taken the silver and gold out of my land, God's land. You've taken my silver and gold. And then he goes into a, a, a prophecy here. He says, proclaim among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the, the mighty men, let all the men who draw near and let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come. 
all you commanding, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves here. Bring down your wa warriors, O Lord, and let the nations <clears throat> stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Okay, so people are going to, these nations are going to be so set on war, and it's going to be something that God orchestrates, that they're going to divert all their resources into machinery of war, beating their plowshares into swords and their spears into, and their pruning hooks into spears. They're going to divert all their resources into implements of war. And even, you know, they're going to be so fired up that even people that aren't even qualified to be soldiers, the weak, say, I'm a warrior, okay? So everybody's going to be, everybody's going to be a warrior, okay? And they're all going to rush to their own destruction. And notice the uh, analogy to a harvest. This is also the same pass, or the same analogy can be found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, about the reaping of the earth with a sickle, as you're reaping grain, and also treading the winepress of God's wrath, okay, for their evil is great. God always judges at the proper time. Uh, the nations are ripe for judgment because of their great evil. Judgment comes at the proper time, just as the harvest comes when the crops are ripe. Okay? Uh, there's a verse in Genesis 15, 16, when God makes his covenant with, with uh, Abraham, and he walks between the, you know, he cuts up the animals, and he walks between them with the torch, you know, and everything, and it's a real spooky thing, you know. Uh, and God tells Abraham that his people are going to be and they're going to be in the land of Egypt for 400 years, okay? And the reason he says that they're going to be there for 400 years is because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, okay? So, who were the Amorites? Where do the Amorites live? Anybody know where the Amorites lived? The Amorites lived in the Promised Land, guys, okay? So where was, what was Israel going to do when they got to the promised land? They were going to destroy them, weren't they? That was what they were supposed to do was, was destroy every one of them. Now, they didn't really do all that. But God used Israel as a judgment, a tool of judgment on the Amorites. But when he made the promise to Abraham in Genesis, he said that the people were going to be uh, in the land of, in, in the land of Egypt for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. In other words, that 400 years was a period of time that allowed the Amorites' iniquity and their sinfulness and their, and their you know, uh, godlessness and all their perverse acts to reach the point at which God said, it's time. They were ripe for judgment, okay? So, and, and Paul uh, and again, in chapter 2 of Romans, he says, he says, you're storing up wrath for yourselves for the day of wrath. Okay? You know? So God, you know, uh, somebody who's, who is in a, in a totally unrepentant, uh, uh, unregenerate state, uh, they are just building up wrath for themselves. And the final judgment, God's, God's wrath will be satisfied because there is going to be a final judgment, okay? 
And so he goes on to talk about how God roars from Zion. And even though the nations are destroyed here uh, in the Valley of Decision, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, God protects his people. Okay, and then the, the final thing is the renewal. And uh, that's the, the last few verses, starting in verse 17. It says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the street beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Okay, Egypt shall become desolate, Edom a desolate wilderness. So what he's saying here is that the, the land of Israel is going to be like a, a paradise again. Okay, now, uh, this corresponds, I believe, okay, this, this is renewal. This is the new, this is the new uh, Jerusalem, okay? And uh, because he's describing things here that have never really been, at least in, in, we know, as far as we know, in, in the Holy Land, which, uh, you know, where it's going to be just a, uh, it's, it's going to be like truly a land of milk and honey, okay? And uh, uh, the hills shall flow with milk, all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, okay? Certainly ain't that way now, you know, it's dry. It's, uh, it's not a paradise. But uh, this is what it's going to be. And if you look in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, we're almost done. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city... New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride before her husband, adorned for her husband. Okay? And it said, and I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with, with them and be their God. Okay? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then in uh, the first few verses of chapter 22 of Revelation, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Okay, so this paradise renewal uh, at the end, after the judgment, uh, you know, we could say it corresponds to the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? Now, like I said initially, I don't want to get into eschatological stuff here, okay? Uh, because I'm certainly no way even close to being uh, real authoritative on that at all. But, uh, uh, and, and Joel, as you can see, uh, can be a difficult book because, I, because it, there appears to be future things intertwined with current things. And there appears to be uh, uh, symbology uh, of one thing uh, used for another. And so, uh, but the key, the key messages of Joel we can get, and they are applicable to us today, and they are applicable to the church. And uh, 
Uh, I hope that you've seen some of that, and I hope that uh, uh, I haven't said anything. I pray that I have not said anything uh, to lead anyone into error on, uh, on any of these things. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we praise you that you are an unchanging God. You are the same God today and forever that was God in Joel's time, whenever that was. And the, the things that you spoke through him have, a, have application to us today, Lord. Realizing, as Paul said, Lord, that these things were given for our instruction. That all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So, Lord, I thank you for this, for this book of Joel and the things that it has to say. And, Lord, I pray that uh, we will uh, take it to heart. Lord, draw us close together. Uh, I want to pray for Michelle Riley's mom. She's in the hospital and not doing well uh, after gastric bypass surgery. Uh, Lord, I want to pray for uh, Scott and Jessica's daughter. I pray that uh, you would provide the resources for them to, to make the, uh, the doctor's appointment next week. Thank you that you are uh, almighty God and that you do great and wonderful things that we can't even imagine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.